Welcome back to your local vaccination center's favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I just got my first shot last week, and then I came home and celebrated, of course, that evening with another shot, one of the nectars of the Kentucky gods. And speaking of Kentucky, I am so excited to introduce today's guest on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Uh, If you remember, I mentioned in last week's episode when we had board member Gina Williams on the show that Mike, Steffi, and I uh, are each going to be taking our turns hosting our own short episodes of the podcast with someone that is near and dear to us. And for my short today, I thought it'd be fun to sit down and talk with my good friend and former colleague at my previous orchestra, Teddy Abrams. For seven seasons, Teddy has been the music director of the Louisville Orchestra, and he is also the music director of the Brit Festival in Oregon. Welcome to the show, Teddy. Thank you so much for having me. It's great great to see you. Great to be here. This is super fun. This is great to reconnect like this through through the Zoom lens and, and over the airwaves here. I know you've been super busy. Uh, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. In the last few weeks, let's see, you've talked to Ari Shapiro from NPR. You did a podcast with Yo-Yo Ma. You are just busy, busy, busy all over the place. So I really appreciate you making the time for, for us today. Oh no, this this is great. We we miss you here in Louisville and getting a chance to to chat. And of course, I love uh, Kansas City too. It's a, such an amazing orchestra, incredible town. And uh, haven't been there for a really long time, but excited to hear about how things are going there. Yeah, things are going well. Just like uh, the Louisville Orchestra, we have also been recording and streaming a lot. I know you've been doing a lot of concerts. And I want to talk about a few of those today. So one, one thing that has always struck me about Teddy, uh, for our audiences listening, is that he's always been, long before the pandemic, very creative and innovative uh, with the programs that he comes up with, with the collaborations that he does in the Louisville community. Uh, in my time there, I saw some amazing concerts. Um, some ones that really stick out to me are the Bernstein Mass that you did with various choirs from uh, the city and full high school marching bands coming down the aisles of the Kentucky Center. It was incredible. (laughs) Um, The concert that you did with the Louisville Ballet, where the first half, the orchestra was upstage and the ballet dancers were in front for a piece that you wrote, Unified Field, which was super cool. And then in the second half, the orchestra went down to the pit and did a newly staged version of Petrushka. Oh, my gosh. And that was incredible. (laughs) What were we thinking? (laughs) What were Uh, we thinking on all those things? You were Uh, thinking, let's do something that no one else does. Let's do something bold and interesting. And like I said, that's one thing that I've always admired about you. So what are some of the things you've been doing during the pandemic? Because I know that uh, you have been doing these virtual concerts, but you've been doing some pretty... Um, in-the-moment things, especially when it relates to the events that have been happening in Louisville for the past year during the pandemic. So just talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, and I mean, of course, Louisville is such a different place, uh, given everything that we've been through with the Breonna Taylor situation and the city uprisings. It really has changed the the feeling of being a a Louisville resident. Uh, And there are a lot of positive things that are coming from that situation already, Uh, A lot of introspection and conversation and dialogue that would never have happened or or certainly not um, at at this level than this quickly. 
Uh, so I, I don't want to make it seem like it's all um, a, a, a challenging or tragic situation. Of course, the, the, the original events are terribly tragic that, that instigated this, but there is healing and growth that, that I believe is is happening too, in addition to um, this big questioning of, of the identity of the city. And uh, I know every, every urban center in America and probably the whole country went through that same reckoning to some extent, but it was particularly acute in Louisville, just because of how how intense it was, and and as you know, I live right downtown. I'm, I'm just a you know a matter of of uh, you know a 15 minute walk from where all the 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 major protests were taking place, and many of them t- did end up coming right in front of my house. So mm. there's that part of it, um, which uh, if you're going to be a civic arts organization, you can't just pretend like stuff along those lines didn't happen. You can't ignore that which has often actually been the stance of major arts institutions to, to say, well, when, mm. once there's some perspective, then we can deal with these issues in a way that makes it comfortable for everybody. And you just can't do that now. Um, but you also don't want to uh, seem like you're opportunistic or, or taking advantage of a situation or, or telling stories that you haven't thoroughly um, maybe understood or, or thought through. So there's that whole side of it. And of course, there's the COVID side, which every everybody's dealing with. Um, and then there's the, there's the, as you said, the, the whole mentality that, that I've tried to inspire here to the best of my abilities is, is really to approach everything with a creative adventurous spirit first, then figure out how to do it second. <laughs> and you, as you know, the world of, of classical music is very much about figuring out how to do it first, then kind of asking what they want to do after that, mm. which I think is totally upside down. I mean, yeah. it, it almost always starts with, here are the resources. Now, how would you like to build your vision out of that? And I mean, I'm right. pretty sure that's the opposite of a vision. So um, that's <laughs> that's a, a bunch of wood. And then people say, so tell me the dream house that you like. I've already chopped the wood that you have available for you to use. You can't really ask for any more. And I've been all about saying, no, that's, that's the exact opposite of how we should do things. Let's first tell everybody all of our big dreams and see what we can, we can pull out of here and um uh this year i mean there's terribly um non-specific answer to your question but there but you know it's just kind of the general philosophy when when everything kind of went down in march 2020 we all really embraced the situation rather than kind of put off thinking about what the future might have to be. And I think there was a lot of wishful thinking in in the, the arts industry in general. I mean, and everything from commercial, we're talking from Live Nation to Broadway, all the way down to a chamber music festivals. They all just, I mean, there was a lot of um, wishful thinking that this would go away quickly. And if we did one thing right, it was that we said, Let's not, I mean, let's hope it goes away quickly, but let's actually assume that this is going to be a fundamental change in how we do things and just run with that chance to finally maybe think of a new way of presenting music and, and taking chances and risks. And, and uh, people did, they, they did accept and then, and then ultimately embrace that, that kind of thinking. So it's been a really, really weird year, yeah. both ups and downs at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I love that analogy, by the way, you made about the house and trying to build a house with, here's all your materials, what are you going to build? I totally agree with you that too often we think about what we're going to program or, or you know, how much money we have to do it or all those kinds of details before we think about what are we supposed to be doing? What is our role in the community? How are we, how are we serving our community? And I feel like you've always been keen to that. And especially during this past year, I think we've all had to rethink what that means, actually. I think part of, for me, a lot of it's been reflecting 
on what is the purpose of an orchestra truly in a community. And are we always say we, we are an orchestra for everyone, but how are we accomplishing that? And I think that we've all rethought that process of getting out into the community more, building relationships with other key members in the community. Uh, one thing that I am so excited about is seeing this concert that you just recorded with uh, Jacory Arthur, uh, a great artist in Louisville, and several vocalists as well. Tell, tell us a little bit about this program that you just put together that we'll be able to see soon on the Louisville Orchestra Virtual Edition website. Yeah, that that was actually one that stemmed from now a seven-year relationship with this remarkable artist, Jacory Arthur, who has many different hats. He has many, he has, he says he's known by many different names because he's, uh, uh Arthur, uh, as a, as professor Arthur, when he, he's a, a teacher of, of music, he's a classical, uh, percussionist. Uh, he is 1200 when he's a rap star and now he's a uh, Metro councilman, Jacory Arthur. He is uh, Louisville's Metro Council person for District 4, which is downtown. And for um, a, a rap classical percussion teacher um, who's in his 20s to be the Metro Council person for the, the you know, arguably the most influential district in Louisville at a time like this, um, who was also black, uh, is quite the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jacory and I have been working together for years. He's one of my, my first friends that I made in this city. Uh, and I was just impressed from the beginning with his, uh, it's, it's not just his talent, but his ability to do things and get things done. And, and not, he is not all talk. There are so many people that have incredible talent and there, and there's a lot of talk to Corey gets things done. Uh, mm -hmm. and I've been just, just continually impressed by everything that we've done together. And so, uh, one of the things that, that we wanted to do in this moment, especially as it, we reached the one year anniversary of Brianna Taylor's death was to use music, uh, in a way that's not just the kind of, I call it the Jangoistic way of saying music brings everybody together. I would say, so what? That's, mm. that, that's a slogan. That's a political slogan. You know, that's what you tell donors when you when you don't necessarily have things to really say about what you plan to do with it. That's just a that's just you know a vague um, you, know, you know kind of like a, a a talking point. But what exactly do you intend to do with the power of that? You know, if music brings people together, what are you going to do about that? That that's a that's a call to action. And so what we wanted to do with Jacory is to build a program that helped people as we're going through this reckoning. Re recognize that the the history of black music in America is the history of music in America. Yes. They are one and the same. You can't separate them out. And in fact, most of the music that we end up loving, even if we, we don't know that there's any association with black culture, stems from that very source. And yeah. so he put together this wonderful uh, program. Uh, we opened with the Ravel Piano Concerto. I was I was doing, as you know, I, I well, you know, having done the Copeland with with, with me, you know, like we we do these crazy yeah. things. So, because of course, you know, Ravel in this case was inspired, I think, very authentically by American jazz, by by you know, Harlem jazz clubs. And I think that he didn't say, "I'm going to write jazz." He said, "I'm going to be inspired by this wonderful music. How can I make that a part of my voice?" So we started with that piece, and then it moved into Jacory. Um, kind of emceeing and hosting this progression from spirituals uh, and and you know early uh, uh, song uh, from from the the times of slavery all the way to hip hop and everything in between, really tracing the lineage and you can hear how everything we listen to today is intertwined with that story and and we felt like that's our way it's a it's actually a positive beautiful message but mm -hmm. the subtext 
speaks to what we're we're dealing with. I don't we don't need to do a program that makes people feel bad about themselves, but we do need to do a program that takes the the, the reality seriously. If if you know what I mean, like this yeah, is not self flagellation, but it's also not going to just gloss over things and you know sing and dance and leave it at that. Yeah. I was just uh, talking to you right before we uh, started recording today about the the program that I'm going to be doing next week with the Kansas City Symphony, a pops program where we're looking at the history of American popular music. And it's exactly that. Almost any music today has its roots in black music from the late 1800s, early 1900s, whether it's spirituals or the blues. You know, you trace the lineage through blues to jazz, to rock and roll, to country uh, one of the most fascinating classes I took in undergrad was a class called The History of American Popular Music. And I just remember how eye-opening that was for me, because we don't learn these things in most conservatories. You know, we're so busy studying European music that we don't really think about the roots of our own music here in America. And so I'm really glad to hear that you're celebrating that through a great program, and I can't wait to watch it. So I'm excited well, that's for very, that one. that's very kind. Yeah, it is a thing that it, it's so surprising how when you start to look at history um, seriously and you, and you actually care about that rather than just accepting kind of what, what you believe based on image and stereotype and, and what's been kind of downloaded into your brain, you know, it still blows people's minds when they find out the banjo is an African instrument. Yeah. It still blows people's minds when they find out that the guitar comes from Middle Eastern <laughs> uh, sources. I mean, it still you know, blows people's minds when they, they find out that rock and roll is a form of the blues that ultimately had you know some some kind of elect, electric processing added to it, but it's ultimately a black music, and it's just yeah. you know. And these are not you, you know this this doesn't mean that we actually need to segment ourselves. It actually opens up the idea of music belonging to everyone because the 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 fact that yes, of course, there are questions of appropriation. There are questions of of you know, are you being respectful to the history, especially when you have the ability to know your history and like we do now. Um, but it also, you know, it really tells a beautiful story of, especially in America, how people that disagreed on probably almost everything else and sometimes didn't even see each other as humans still couldn't stop their ears from telling them what was good. Yeah. It's kind of a crazy thing when you, when you think about it, that <laughs> on every other level, there was so much, so much terrible stuff going on. Yet, you know, when it comes to music, it's, it, you can't stop um, the, the, the free flowing of information. Yeah. And great music is great music. And that's another thing that I think that we've always had to think about when it comes to programming. But I think especially this past year, orchestras have had a lot of uh, digesting of how are we representing various groups of people? How are we representing minority composers? How are we representing women composers? How are we representing our community with what they see as far as the makeup of our musicians on stage? And it's something I know I've done a lot of thinking about. I know you have as well. Where do you see coming out of the pandemic? I know none of us have a crystal ball, but how do you think this is going to change, not just programming, but just the way orchestras think and function in the future? What are some positive things that hopefully we take from this difficult time that can help us serve our communities better down the road? Well, what's so fascinating about this is I felt like this ground has been moving for a long time. That this, you know, even though it's totally been accelerated by the the, the last year mm -hmm. in this country, this whole notion of orchestras needing to grow and change and readdress 
fundamentally what they are mm-hmm. has been in play for some time now. I, I mean, I, I've seen it in my own kind of lifespan here. You know, when I when I started off, uh, I grew up in San Francisco, which was always considered back then in, in MTT's days in the in the mid '90s to be the maverick out there orchestra doing all these wacky projects. And if you actually looked at the balance of their season, it wasn't, I think, um, extreme, but especially by today's standards. But the fact that they were doing project-based work on a regular basis, that they were involving composers uh, with thematic concepts in mind, was totally outside the norm of the more uh, conservative orchestra, shall we say? And that really wasn't happening, especially the, the 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 what we used as you know what we used to call the Big Five, and we stopped doing that, thank God, because it doesn't really hmm. mean anything anymore. Um, and you know, back then it was seen as radical, and I feel like since that moment. To, to now, there's been this shift. You've seen orchestras like Kansas City and, and Louisville and, of course, the L.A. Phil and then the big ones on the East Coast, you know, all looking at restructuring and thinking about the balance of living to non-living. And suddenly this has been the, the flame underneath it that in a good way. You know, it has lit up people's thinking. And the, the, the best results, I think, that we can see from this are going to be two things. And one is an expansion of what we believe our stage can hold. Um, and and basically eliminating what is you know and I use this I use this probably in a, in a way that's I don't throw around the term white supremacist in a way that a lot of people do I, I feel like especially in the last couple of years um, li- you know, liberal America has used this term liberally uh, <laughs> and uh, I've I'm generally you know quite specific in in how I approach that term but if you think about people like me that grew up studying piano. Um, as a as a four-year-old and being told that the hierarchy of great music stems from Bach and Beethoven and Mozart on one level and then composers like Brahms and Tchaikovsky are on the next level. Mm. And I had this downloaded into my brain. It, I had no agency. Nobody gave me any other perspective than that for some time. That is a form of, 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 of supremacy. And it doesn't mean that those composers aren't great. Right. It's just that the way we define what the system is that the, the the all of our decisions are based on um, has not been questioned for some time, and this is such an opportunity to say, wait a minute, you your your civic organization, you take the city's name in your title, why shouldn't your stage have a much broader definition than saying? Basically, two and a half centuries worth of European-centric composers are the the hierarchy, and everything else is extra. I, I and I, I always felt like, why do they have to be extra? Why can't they just be included in the same idea of great music? You know, why yeah. why can't the orchestra evolve and grow to to accommodate and and include all of that? Um, so anyway, I think that would be an amazing result. And then it's a a, a simple little point, but a, but a huge implications. If you really want to make things more equitable, the balance of living to dead has to be higher. Yeah. You know, that the, the, you're not going to, you can't go back in the past. And, and there is some great undiscovered music in the past, undeniably. That's absolutely true. There is a lot of special music that got overlooked. But you also can't change the fact that there just weren't the numbers. Right. You know, there, there weren't the opportunities. So if you want to change it, the future is totally open to yeah. us. So more living composers. It's very simple. I yeah. think I think that's the that's it's 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 almost kind of obvious. And creating more opportunities for those composers, not just by programming them, but you know, there's some great festivals that are starting to emerge and great programs. 
that have encouraged people from a younger age? Because I think that's key, is getting people interested in doing something musically from an early age and giving them that equal access and equal support system, great mentors, et cetera. Um, so this also makes me think of, you know, when I said all, you know, great music is great music. What is your thought on, I one of my great responsibilities here in Kansas City is getting to lead a lot of our pop series. And I've been able to work with some dynamite artists like Leslie Odom Jr. and Lyle Lovett and some really high quality musicians. And, you know, sometimes the audiences that come for pops or the film series that we do a lot of uh, are totally different than the audience that comes from our classical series. And I always feel like orchestras are saying, how do we get these people that are coming to these kinds of concerts to come to our classical series? And sort of what you were just saying made me think, do they have to? If we're really trying to serve everyone, is it okay that some people want to come to these things that we're offering and some people want to come to these things that we're offering? And, you know, maybe there'll be some crossover, but as long as we're presenting great music and giving lots of different opportunities, do we really have to have that kind of crossover? I know that's kind of the old mentality of building subscriptions, building subscriptions. But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I saw once, th I remember once you programmed the Overture to Oklahoma on a classical concert to open the program. And I don't remember exactly what else was on the program. I don't know if you remember. Oh my God, but I thought, yeah, that's right. Well, that's great. He's putting a Pops piece on a classical, maybe it was um, Seven Deadly Sins or something. I don't remember. I think now, I'm it sure there was. was. A tie -in. Yeah, that's right. That's what, yeah, yeah. That, and I forget what else we were doing. That was all, it was all American program. Yeah. I mean, if you count vile, but it was, yeah. yeah, that we had that on. And, and, you know, I've always felt it's very natural to just choose music that, that I think is the right music for the concert. And I've never been really stuck on, well, that doesn't belong there. That does belong there. Like if, if I was doing a pops program and it seemed like, you know, that, that you could do the, you know, Adagietto from Mahler five, then I do that, you know, if that if it if it was the best thing to choose. Yeah. But I but I actually think you're you're right. I mean, you, any any marketing director that's been to a single le league of American orchestras meeting will of course tell you you can't get your pops people to come to classics and vice versa. They like what they like. And and, and if you if you take that a step further, the the lesson to be learned is we need more product streams. Hmm. That it's okay to to it's like you know Kellogg's cereal makes all kinds of things, and and you, if you try and make the kids eat Weetabix or whatever, like they're not <laughs> gonna just do it because you told them it's good for them. But some people love Weetabix, and that's fine. <laughs> like it's okay to make a lot of different products. And and I've I've always said okay, we're trying to serve how many people? We got about a million five in the whole area. So. That's a lot of different approaches and a lot of different ideas about what the orchestra can be. And if somebody's only interaction with us on a yearly basis, because I'd love for everybody to have a yearly interaction, maybe it's as simple as they go to one big outdoor concert. Maybe they can yeah. come see the orchestra play you know, for the big fireworks thunder show, as you know, you know anybody who's been to, to Louisville around you know, Derby time knows, knows about thunder. But, but whatever it is, let people have the relationship that they help define. Because then if you, if you can build that and then build trust, and this is the really important thing, because I think a lot of orchestras get stuck on, well, if we just play really, really well, they'll love it and buy more tickets. No, not necessarily, because even Kellogg Cereal knows that if you just put a really good tasting cereal in with no relationship built, no marketing, no branding, don't expect them just to buy it again. And our version of branding, I believe to be the the 
um, simulation of a personal relationship. The idea that when a person comes to the show, they feel like they connected with the musicians, especially the conductor because they are so public facing, but it could be anybody. Mm -hmm. Could be a soloist, it could be a member of the orchestra or a composer, really think of everybody in that category. But it's that part of trust building that's gonna get people to buy another ticket or come to another interaction. And it's that's the side of it. You've got to have the, the, the product, it's gotta be great. You've gotta back it up with talent and an amazing show, yes. But that alone is not enough. If you don't do the relationship building, don't expect it. They may check that box and say, hey, we went to the orchestra once. It was 10 years ago now, but it was good. Mm. But if they built a relationship and they, they loved you, it's, it's the same in popular music. You know, they know this. If they have that positive interaction, feel like they, they care about you, they'll come back. And that's how you can build, you know, your, your different product lines, as I like to say. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Today's episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, by the way, is brought to you by Kellogg's Raisin Bran. I like another good analogy, Teddy. You're full of the good analogies today. I'm hoping that they'll they'll sponsor things. I think they should. You know, you know that show, um, Baskets. Yeah. You know the the show with Zach Galifianakis, and he yeah, yeah. he um they they just started writing in Costco and um and what's the other brand that's always in that show? Arby's. They just wrote oh. <laughs> them in, and then Arby's yeah. did sponsor it. I've always felt like we could do that, you know. Like they just wrote them; they'd be a big part of the show. We should. We could we have do the patches same. on the back of our tails, you know, that just <laughs> says this concert is sponsored. Why not? Why not? Yes. Um, well, we're about out of time today, but I I'd, I really want to thank you for being with me. But I can't let you go before I ask you a few very important questions that we ask all of our guests here on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Uh, first of all, what is your favorite drink? Since this is a show about walking into a bar, what is your favorite drink of choice? It could be alcoholic or non-alcoholic. But if you were to walk into a bar and see Beethoven sitting there, and there was an empty seat next to him, and you sat next to him, and you were sharing this drink with him, what would you ask him? Two-part question. All right, well, if Beethoven was in Louisville, <laughs> I'd have to introduce him to one of the, the great, great, rare whiskeys that, that you can yes. find here that you just can't find anywhere. And, you know, a certain, I, I don't know if I could narrow it down to one. I'm sure you, you know this better than I do. You have, you have quite the collection. I do. Uh, <laughs> a great Willet. Yeah. Like a really, a really awesome, you know, the, not the, not the pot stills, um, which has nothing to do with marijuana for those that, that don't know much about whiskey, but you know, <laughs> um, but the, the rare release, which you can't find, but like, especially the super old ones, Oh man! Or the do you know this? The William Heaven Hill. Yes. Oh my God! I I tried. Yeah, I tried. That's delicious. It's so good. I think that yeah. he'd be sold on Kentucky. Yeah, absolutely. He'd probably move. There's he'd a river there. Move. There was a river in in Germany. So you know, it makes sense. And you know, yeah. okay, but we have to acknowledge our sponsors. I th I think the 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 birthday bourbon, the Old Forester birthday bourbon. That's a serious bourbon. That's a good. That one. is a good one. I that like is that a very one. good one. And yeah. the whole Weller line is really oh, good. God, yeah. You know, Weller Twelve, Weller Antique. I'm looking uh, up on my shelf right now, and I'm getting thirsty for Happy Hour, which is coming soon. Do you have sooner those? for you? You're an hour ahead. Are those all sitting there? Those are all sitting there. I'll no. show you after we're done today. I'll show you my collection. I have oh. I have quite a few good ones built up. Oh, You'll have man. to come to Kansas City and visit, and we'll do a tasting. I'm so jealous. Well, you were smart. You you started collecting at the right time, and yeah. I started too late, and now it's it's so hard to find any of that. Yeah, it's tough. I it's remember tough. still getting Blantons for oh, yeah. fifty bucks. That was the that was the stuff that you know everyone was saying. This is your last chance. It's going to go in in a couple of years. But this is no way. There's plenty. Well, can't find it now. Yep. 
See, this was my secret mission of having you on the show today because we have yet to have a guest that's from Louisville so I could talk bourbon for a solid five minutes. This is great. And uh, what would you ask Beethoven if you were sharing a Blanton's or a rare Willits with him or a William LaRue Weller, perhaps? You know, that's such a that's such an interesting question. Be, you know what? I, I guess this is, this is a bad answer, but part of the whole mystery and the p- part of the whole fun of playing the music by people like Beethoven is that you can't ask them anything. Hmm. And it's like you have to invent them for yourselves. And you ha- you feel like you have a personal relationship with composers, especially, you know, we all know, play so much Beethoven or, or, or Mozart or Bach or Mahler or any of this. You end up creating, it's almost like reading a novel. You know, it's like you create the characters in your minds. They have a look and a feel. And I guess I've never thought about if I actually met somebody, what I'd ask. <laughs> well, I, I actually, I think that's a good answer. You don't want to ask anything because you want it to remain a mystery and you want to come to those decisions on your own, perhaps. I, I think so. In a, in a weird way, it's a little like now that I've seen the Peter Jackson movies, I, I can't remember my version of, of Frodo wasn't <laughs> Elijah Wood. Yeah. And now I'm stuck with, which he's great as Frodo, but he's just a little bit like, you know what I mean? Like I've got this, yeah. this, this, the, the Beethoven image and ideal that I have, I guess I've never considered, you know, but, but now that they're probably going to do time travel soon, that's, you know, certainly if, if anything happens in 21, I'm sure we'll be, you yeah. know, <laughs> as we turn into lizard people from our vaccinations, we'll be time traveling. So why not? <laughs> you never know. Well, you might want to think about it just in case that opportunity comes about oh and you God. do get to go back to, you know, 1700s and get to or early 1800s and ask Beethoven something. But I actually like your answer. And I think if you had a good bourbon that you were sharing with him, you wouldn't need to talk at all. And he'd probably prefer that. He was probably more the, you know, just the side, let's yeah. drink. Well, I, I do. I love that story of, um, I guess, their, their, their tales um, of, of Shostakovich and Rostropovich would often spend time together in in Russia, they would just come over to each other's apartments and sit there drinking vodka in silence for about an hour and then leave. <laughs> wow. That was all they needed. They just wanted the they wanted the company and they'd sit there just in complete silence in their rooms and then when the time was up and they'd had the whatever that did for them, they <laughs> they left. That's amazing. That's amazing. All right, one final question before I let you go today. Um, have you been listening to more music during this past year because you've had more time to do so? Because I know as conductors, we don't tend to listen to a lot of music. I don't know about you, but especially orchestral music, because I'm listening to it all the time and I love it, but I tend to unwind with a few other things. Have you been listening to anything in particular, either classical or non-classical, maybe that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? That is also a great question. Yes, I've listened to a lot more music, um, just in general, not specifically classical, but partly because we had to reprogram an entire season very quickly. So that meant, on you know, just in general, figuring out a whole season's worth of programs in a short span of time. I, I'd done all that planning already. I went out the window. So it was tons of listening to figure out what, what would work well there. Um, but in terms of other other things, what I generally do, I, I put on every day in the morning a, a new album, and I start from the beginning. I don't I don't skip songs that I don't like, and I go straight mm. down the list of of you know the whole the whole track list. I don't skip, um, and I, I put it on in the morning, and you know wherever I end up, I I pick up there the next day, and I found that to be really wonderful um, opportunity to just digest that music in more the way 
that they wanted you and less through the lens of Spotify and iTunes, which is, you know, about like quick gratification for the things that you already sort of recognize. Hmm. Um, so that's been, that's been really helpful. I've, I've been doing the, the, the Rolling Stone 500 albums list, which sounds like it should go quickly, but some of them, like I'm in the middle of, of a blues, like it's the Sun Records collection right now. Um, which is like some, there's some Elvis and, and some Johnny Cash, but there's also some like more obscure, amazing stuff, but there are 80 tracks on it. So some of these wow. things are like three, four hour compilations. I love that. That list is awesome. And they updated it this, this year. It's just, it's kind of a fun oh, cool. thing. That's super cool. Super cool. Well, I'd also like to recommend that people listen to your recent, uh, podcast podversation with Yo-Yo Ma. That I listened to that just the other day. It was amazing. Uh, we'll put the link for that in the show notes. He is amazing. And also your NPR interview that you did recently with Ja'Cory, with Ari Shapiro, uh, where you talk in more detail about the program that you guys put together uh, a couple weeks ago, which will be available soon. Yeah, Teddy, I, I want to thank you once again for making the time uh, to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. It's so great to see you again. I miss you. I miss my good friends in the Louisville Orchestra, and I hope to be back and visit you guys soon. Thank you so much for taking your time today to talk with us. Well, thank you, Jason. We really miss you here. we got to get you back. That'd be great. Sometime soon. Um, or what well, we got to come out and visit. We need to do a little road trip down to Kansas City. Please. You're welcome anytime. I'd love to see you here too. All right. Thank you, Teddy. Thank you. Well, we will continue with these shorts next week when Stephanie welcomes a good friend of the symphony, Alex Espy, to the show. Alex has committed much of his life to bringing art of all types to children in Kansas City. I've gotten to do a few programs with Alex in my time here, and he is amazing. So Alex and Stephanie will make a fabulous creative team, and I can't wait to hear about all the cool stuff they've been up to next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>